Okay, English 325. Bartolome de las Casas. We have a little bit of a discussion about the haircut. We like it. We're wondering if he takes some enhancements for his eyebrows. We like those too. I shouldn't say we. I like them. I brought it up. Every, nobody else, nobody was laughing. Nobody, nobody wanted to engage. It was just a, a failure on my part. Anyways, uh, 1552, so about 50 years after Columbus, like this is probably the first guy that we've read, the author, single author, that, that is unfamiliar to you, right? The Iroquois creation story and the Navajo creation story, they didn't have authors, properly speaking. Columbus, we're kind of familiar with him, although some of the things we're going to talk about today are like what we think we know about Columbus is different than reality. Bartolome de las Casas, I, I assume that none of you have heard of this man before. Yeah? Is that fair? Fair assumption? Don't know Bartolome? I don't know him. Yeah, so just to give you a kind of little primer on this guy. So the interesting thing about Bartolome de las Casas, who becomes, as you know because of what you read, he becomes one of like the most uh, um, powerful critics of somebody like Columbus and of Spanish colonization and what the Spanish do in the Indies. Right? He actually starts as a soldier in the West Indies doing the types of things that he later criticizes. So he's a soldier in the West Indies. He takes slaves. He uh, tortures, maims, brutalizes indigenous populations in like Bermuda and Hispaniola and those places. Um, and then at a certain point, he kind of like comes to God. He realizes that what he's doing is incredibly wrong, that this entire process is this project is incredibly wrong and so he actually renounces the slaves that he was given he renounces all of his prior acts and he becomes a priest as you can see from the image right we, i don't know if you can quite see that cross that he's wearing there right but he becomes a priest and he spends the rest of his life actually arguing against the um enslavement of native populations the torture and killing and maiming of native populations uh, by the Spanish crown in the New World. And he actually has considerable success, right? So for a time, for a very, very, very short amount of time during his lifetime, the Spanish crown actually um, disallows native slavery, right? They say, okay, you can't take Indian people as slaves anymore. We have to stop that practice. So that was on account of Bartolome de las Casas' actions. It didn't last very long, but he did have a decent amount of success for a small amount of time. The other important thing to know about him is that he personally knew Columbus. Right? He knew Columbus. He transcribed Columbus's journals. He annotated those journals. He annotated the diary. Right. So he is like a contemporary, close contemporary with Christopher Columbus, okay? which is really important for our concerns right? because we're reading them back to back. And the idea here is that you know, we get Columbus's account, which tells us that, like, this place is a paradise, and the native people are going to welcome us with open arms, and they're going to be so generous with what they have, and, and they're peaceable, and they're guileless, and all those things we talked about on Friday. What De Las Casas is showing us is that that actually wasn't really the case, and that we have to read Columbus's letters, and read his diaries, and read his journals very differently than the way he presents himself, which is kind of what we did on Friday, if you've listened. In. That's kind of what we did. Is we said, like, you know, Columbus is trying to portray himself in a particular way, but that doesn't seem quite right, knowing what we know now, and like just using common sense. It doesn't seem quite right. So Bartolome de las Casas knows Columbus. He's familiar with Columbus's materials, and he's seen what Columbus 
and people like Columbus do, and he is critiquing it really strongly. I mean, this is a kind of amazing document in many ways. Very short, but really fan, not fantastic, um, foundational, important, uh, shocking document that discusses the history of colonization in the New World in a different way than we get from Columbus. So maybe that's a place to start, right? How does this document, or how does De Las Casas, alter our understanding of colonization to the extent that we have an, an understanding of colonization prior to reading this? How does that understanding change? So I'll read off the first passage, and we can talk it through. And this practice came to such great temerity and shamelessness and ignominy, that means like sinfulness, that a Christian captain did violate, that means rape in this context, the wife of a native of a, the greatest king, the lord of all the island. And at that, the Indians began to seek ways to cast the Christians from their lands. They took up arms, that means they took up weapons. What's notable or interesting about that in light of kind of the traditional narrative that we get around colonization? Yeah, Kayla. Okay, well. I kind of question everything I learned in history class because yeah, he like has a holiday named after him. Like we were told that Columbus found the Americas, but right. now what we're learning is that he didn't do it really the right way. He kind of just pillaged and tortured. Right. Yeah, so that's certainly one thing is that like what De Las Casas shows us, and we're going to go into this a little bit more in a second with the other passages we have here, is that like, the thing that we learn about Columbus is, like, he sailed the ocean blue in 1492. Does anybody remember the three boats? Uh, yeah, like, how do you know that? Like, in second grade or whatever, some, like, Mrs. Robinson drilled that, drilled that into your mind. Like, how is that still in the deep, dark recesses of all of our reptilian brains, Right? the Nina, the Pinta, the Santa Maria, 1492, South the Ocean Blue. Like, that's the narrative that we have. Of course, that narrative doesn't really talk at all about some of the things that come up in the passages that we're going to read. Yeah, Faith? Um, yeah, we're, we were taught in, like, elementary school, and even in high school, like, they were breaking bread together, and they were, it was, um, like, friendly, but they were taking their bread and breaking their skulls. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not laughing at the idea of breaking the bread and, or of taking the bread and breaking the skulls, but the, the nice wordplay you did there is good. Yeah, exactly, right? Like, uh, what we learn initially, like that kind of conventional, traditional description we get if we go to kind of just a, a you know, normal public or private school in New York State is that, like, this encounter is precisely that. It's like, an encounter between two populations, and it seems almost as if like no violence has occurred, right? Like this is a kind of peaceable interaction, okay? Which is clearly not the case. We're going to read a couple of passages here to give light to that. But I want to focus on that first passage a little bit further, right? There's something notable about that one that speaks again to kind of Peyton's point, but in a more particular sense. And at that, the Indians began to seek ways to cast the Christians from their lands. They took up arms. So in distinction to like what we learn, as Peyton said, that like the native people like welcomed Spanish colonists into their um, homes and into their lands, and they were hospitable. Like in contrast to that, what we actually learned is that native people tried to defend their homes and defend their people. Why is it important to have a realization of that? Like why is that important to know? Yeah. Because Columbus said the opposite. Right. And because Columbus said the opposite, our kind of traditional conventional narrative or expectation about what occurs is that they didn't fight back, 
right? In fact, Columbus tells us that they're guileless and that they're weak and that they're timorous, right? All of those words are in Columbus's letter that we read on Friday. He tells us that they're not going to fight back, right? And that they don't. Just the opposite. Like, Columbus tells us that they are so imbecilic that, like, you know, a soldier has a sword in his hand and the native person just reaches out and grabs the blade and cuts himself because they don't understand what a sword is, right? They don't understand that it's going to hurt them. So what we learn from De Las Casas is that native people actually fought back. They actually tried to defend themselves. That's important to know, and it really gives us a very different sense of what happens in these moments of colonization. I would suggest to you also that what it shows us is that native people like have agency. They have personal responsibility and they take actions to defend themselves as opposed to just kind of like letting this happen to them. The idea that native people would just let this happen to them provides a really useful justification for later bad acts, right? Oh, you didn't defend yourself in the first place so we can continue to kind of do what we did at the beginning, right? This gives the lie to that. So yeah, I just want to emphasize the idea that native people defended themselves, they took up arms, they knew that this was bad, right, clearly, and they tried to defend themselves against it. They didn't just accept this meekly and willingly. All right, so the next three are really in concert with one another, and we've talked through it a little bit, but I want to put a kind of really fine point on it. Um, others and all those that they desired to let live, they would cut off both their hands but leave them hanging by the skin, and they would say to them, go and take these letters, which was to say, carry the news to the people who have hidden themselves in the mountains and the wilderness. And so with his hands, he's talking about an executioner, and so with his hands, he sewed their mouths shut with sticks so that they could make no sounds, and then poked up the fire and roasted them as long as he had first desired. And then I'll just read the last one, and we'll talk through them. He says, uh, De Las Casas says, a ship might sail without compass and without map. He's talking about between Bermuda and Hispaniola, I believe. Hispaniola is, I did look it up. I, was, I wasn't sure on Friday, and I was going to edit the podcast to make sure I wasn't an idiot, but I was right. Hispaniola is the island that includes Haiti and the Dominican Republic. It's called Hispaniola. A ship might sail without compass and without map between Bermuda and Hispaniola, taking its course by the trail of Indians floating on the surface of the sea, thrown dead from a ship that went before. So if we take all three of these passages together, which are really harrowing to read and think about, what does that reveal to us about the colonizing processes? Yeah. So in the report on Friday, we kind of speculated that the, our Columbus didn't see the natives as much, unless it's like natural resources or like yeah. less than a person. Yeah. And Dale's Casas is almost confirming our speculations. Yeah, yeah good. Right. We, on Friday, we talked about how native people seem almost as if they are either equivalent to something like rubber or aloe or mastic or even, maybe even lower than a native uh, a natural resource. But what, and this, what this shows us is, yeah, it's true, right? The wanton way in which they were killed, right? The kind of like almost glorying in their destruction suggests to us, it reinforces for us, um, it provides evidence for the fact that Columbus or the Spanish colonists really didn't see these people as humans. They saw them as something lesser. Then. Why would they see them, and this kind of gets into the second slide, but why would these people see natives as something lesser than human? What did they lack? They lacked, like, they're um, culturalists. They didn't have the same religion as them. Like, except in the pictures they're not wearing, like, 
fully, they're not fully clothed, they're not speaking English or the language the Spaniards were speaking. It was like completely different. Yeah, so they're profoundly, <laughs> profoundly other, profoundly different. And like all, that's mapped on their bodies, what they're wearing, what they're saying, how they're interacting with one another. And then, you know, principally the difference is that they're not Christians, right? They're savages, right? And in this time period for these people, if you are a savage, if you are an infidel, right? If you are not a Christian, that is essentially akin to not being a human. Sub, you're subhuman at that point, right? You need to be lifted up to full humanity by being a Christian. So yeah, in that sense, it really does alter our understanding of colonialism, if we think that this colonial encounter is a peaceable one or a hospitable one, like this is not just a narrative that we get out of Columbus, this is also a narrative in the United States American context that we get out of something like Thanksgiving, right, that like we just break bread with, the, the Puritans just broke bread with the natives and everything was hunky-dory, like we ate our oysters and our turkey and like they just welcomed their homes to us and us as and settlers and you know, like, oh yeah, you can settle that land, that's great, cool, right? What we don't know is, like, the Pequot War was, like, one of the bloodiest encounters in early colonial history, and it happened right around the time of the first Thanksgiving, and, like, there was 300 or 400 Pequot women and children uh, um, in a fortification, and the Puritans surrounded it and burned the whole thing and killed everyone inside, like, so that's what we don't learn, but we do learn Thanksgiving, this is the same thing. What we do learn is Columbus sailed the ocean blue. We learn it as a kind of peaceable, hospitable encounter, right? But what's glossed over is all the violence that attends that colonial practice. Right? It's just the same as Thanksgiving, right? Except it's in the Caribbean as opposed to the northeast of the United States. What else? Does anybody, um, having read this, Anybody have the experience of being like, oh, I didn't even realize how bad it was? Yeah? Like, you want to speak to that? Well, like, it's pretty gruesome. They yeah. say that they sewed their mouth shut with sticks. Yeah. The extremity of the violence, right? This type of violence, and I just picked out a couple. There's much more. Like, when they're diving for the pearls, and they just make them dive over and over and over and over again until they just start vomiting up blood because they just... they their body temperature is low, lowering so much. Like, so there's all of these examples of like these gruesome ways to kill and maim and torture people. Uh, for me, yeah, maybe for some of you, right? Like, I knew it was bad, but like the extent of it is actually quite revealing, quite shocking. Yeah. I learned, and I didn't learn any of this until like my senior year of high school, and yeah. I had my history teacher kind of told us about it, but I had my response paper due today, and I thought it was kind of crazy that they say, in honor and reverence, they said, our Redeemer and the Twelve Apostles, if they make a biblical reference, yes. and they're so Christian, but they're doing like the absolute opposite of what a Christian would do, Great. and none of that's in the Bible. Of course. Yeah. Uh, precisely, right, and we're going to talk about that more in the second slide, so you've anticipated exactly where we're going, but yeah, that is quite amazing that like, a lot of these really violent acts, and in that instance, that example where they string up 13 people and they do it because it's the 12 apostles and Jesus, and like that's supposed to represent something good, right? A lot of these bad acts are actually justified through Christian faith, right? right? Which is really hard for us to imagine, right? And it was actually hard for Bartolome de las Casas to imagine that as well. Right? 
And that actually segues us really nicely into the second slide. And in fact, these are the only two slides I have, so we'll probably get out of here a little bit early today. Um, usually, I do Columbus and De Las Casas in one class period. But because of our strange schedule, I split them up. So this will be a little bit shorter today. So yeah, going off of kind of Catherine's point and a couple of other ones, um, the second question I asked you was, what does De Las Casas base his criticisms of Spanish colonialism on? He bases them on a couple of different things. And I kind of want to walk us through his justifications or his bases for his criticisms. Uh, for those listening in, I just changed the slide to the, the third one. So he says about halfway through what you read, I vouchsafe that I did see all the things I have writ above and infinite numbers of others. Why is it important for him to say this? Why is it really crucial to that? Well, you know, he's not lying, and he's like a first-hand yeah. um, account. Yeah. You want to add to that? Yeah. And this is just like a drop in the bucket of all the stuff that they do. Right, so putting those two things together is exactly where we want to be with this passage, right? The idea here is that De Las Casas is really invested in, he finds it really important to portray to his readers that he was there. This is not hearsay. This is not secondhand. This is not something that, like, he's just heard from other people. No, no, he actually saw these things occurring. Right? Um, and, Caitlin, I think as you intimated, right, what that does is it provides a measure of authenticity or authority to his account, right? We're a lot less inclined to question it, critique it, or challenge it, if we know that he was actually there. Furthermore, if we know something about his personal history, which is where we began, right, if we know that he was actually a person who was perpetrating these acts before he, like, whatever, turned his life around or something. Yeah. Yeah, I kind of something to say. Like, if he was a soldier and he was doing all this stuff, well, I kind of, like, doubt him in a way that, like, if he was seeing all this and doing all of it, like, was there anyone else that, like, felt the same way as him? Or, like, why did, like, he never say anything or anything? Why did, like, he ever stop it or something? Like so are you suggesting, like, that maybe the fact that he was part of these acts before he turned against them is, it's like, it, like, discredits him? Yeah, I just think that he just doesn't want to be known in that, but, like, he still did it. Like, it's kind of like, I don't know. No, I love that joke like, because... after the fact, now he's just saving yeah. himself because, like, he was a part of it, and now, like, people are kind of fucked out about it. I think it's important though that he's trying to tell us, like, yes, he did it, but if we if he didn't do this, we would never know. Yes, yeah, but those true. two things work in tandem right. with one another. Like, I think that's a really great point. It actually gets us back to what we discussed on Friday with Columbus, right? We're talked so much in the Columbus stuff about how self-interested he is, right? How everything he writes is really about himself, as it is as much as it is about the people he's writing to. And Joe, what you're bringing us to and is like... In sentence, he says, I, three times. Yeah. He's like, I vouchsafe, right. I just do all these things, and I write about that. Yeah, and so... Did he see anyone else do it? Like, did anyone else help him? He's really emphasizing his personal stake in this. And that can have an altruistic uh, result, as Catherine is bringing us to, right? He needs to tell other people so that they know. That's very altruistic. That's good. But yeah, what you're pointing us to is there's also, potentially... I mean, there's a bit of speculation, right? But there's also potentially a bit of self-interestedness in this, too, to be, like, you know, expiating his guilt, basically, making himself feel better. For like if he really felt that way, I thought there should have been, like, a band of people that would like, right. felt the same way. Right, right. Um, the psychology of a bunch of people getting together and doing something that they know is wrong and still doing it anyways, it's really powerful, right? Like, group psychology in that way. Um, it's a really powerful thing. Like, you get one person doing one bad thing, and they might be 
pulled back from that because of a sense of guilt or whatever, a sense of shame. But when you get like 20 people all doing that thing, it's actually a lot harder for one person to pull out of that group. That's just a kind of like pop psychology way to explain why it was only one as opposed to many, potentially. But it's a good thought, yeah. And those things all work together here. Like what we're seeing in this first example, and I like, Joe, how you're bringing us to the repetition of I. Like what we're seeing in this first example is he's trying to emphasize that he was there, that he saw what's happening, and what we're supposed to be taking from that, at least at the kind of superficial level, is we're supposed to be taking that we can trust his account. Right, that he's an authority, that he saw these things. And to go back to Peyton's point, not only that he saw the things that he's talking through, but he saw a lot more than that. So you can only imagine. Right? Okay, so that's the first point. What does he base his criticisms on? He bases them on first-hand experience. And that has particular consequences. Um, particular effects, I guess I should say. Alright, what about the second passage? These Christians began, I shouldn't start to walk as soon as I start to read, because that's actually really hard. These Christians began to take the women and children of the Indians to serve them, and use them ill. And they would eat their victuals, that means food, that issued from the sweat of their brow, and their hard work, and yet still were not content with what the Indians gave them willingly. Think back to Columbus. What's notable about this in relation to the Columbus reading? Yeah. That they, um... They call him, so they just called him guileless, and like they gave all of this stuff to him. But at the end of the day, Columbus took it and still said it wasn't enough and wasn't content with it. Right. This is a really notable statement in light of that really important point that Columbus makes that we talked about on Friday. Right. What De Los Casas is saying is that, yeah, the natives actually did give things, but that wasn't enough for the settlers. That wasn't enough for the Spanish, and they kept taking and taking and taking, and taking, right? Um, taking, and taking, and taking, and taking, particularly in the context of food, but really in the context of anything, is should remind you of something very particular in a kind of Christian faith tradition. Like, seven deadly sins kind of style. Like gluttony, right? Like taking, and taking, and taking, particularly in the context of food. Just like that's a gluttonous activity, right? Not something that Christians... So yeah, this, is, this speaks directly to what Columbus is talking through. It's like that hospitality that Columbus tells us the natives provide to them, that actually wasn't enough for them, right? That they continued to need more and more and more and more. All right, and these last two actually work in concert with one another, and I will end with a discussion of these. And it kind of rounds everything together, and it's really the central point that De Las Casas is trying to get across to us in his critique of Columbus and his, well, his implicit critique of Columbus and his critique of the colonial enterprise in general. So I'll read these together and we can talk through what he's saying. Actually goes back to Catherine's point from before too. And one may see here in what great esteem the Spaniards hold the Indians and may judge whether they obey the divine commandment from which the law and the prophets all derive that men should love one another. And we'll read the second one. And one can see here whether the Spaniards who in their search for pearls act in this wise, that means in this way, act in this way, have obeyed the divine precepts of love for God and man by putting these poor creatures in the way of danger 
both temporal, that means in physical life, in like actual present physical life, both temporal and of the soul as well, because they die outside the faith and without sacraments, and all for their own infinite greed. So let's take these bit by bit. In that first passage, what is De Las Casas saying? What is he not saying? Kind of an interesting rhetorical move that he makes in both of these passages as well. Maybe we can talk about that. But what is he saying? It's like the first commandment is like, uh, love another as you would love yourself yeah. or as you would love God. So he's saying that although they're not Christian, you're supposed to love all people as like they're yourself. And that's kind of what he's saying here. But this is really aren't doing that. They're just pillaging and killing, which kind of goes into the next part. Right. How they're breaking multiple commandments. Right. And committing multiple deadly sins when at the end of the day you're one another. Right, so in that first passage he's basically saying like you be the judge reader see whether these people in their treatment of the Indians in their treatment of the indigenous populations are actually obeying that first commandment to love one another. Right? So that's the first point. Let's talk about the second one and then kind of put them together. The second one goes back to that idea that Caitlin brings us to and actually adds to it. Right? What does De Las Casas mean by saying that, hmm, reader, do the Spaniards obey the divine precepts of love for God and man by putting those poor creatures in the way of danger, both physical and of the soul, because they die outside the faith and without sacraments? What is he saying there? Let's, let's dig into that a little bit. You have all the religious answers. You went to Catholic school, you said? Yeah. yeah this is like some deep psychological trauma so, that you're going to have to work through for a while. So, they're breaking the first commandment because they're putting other men in danger for their own um, wants and needs. Yeah. So that's the, the temporal. And then for the soul is, as opposed to killing and putting them in harm's way, they're supposed to promote Christianity yeah. and have them turn and have them receive the sacraments. But now they're dying and they don't have, and they have, they aren't Christians. So. So, yeah. So not only are you killing these people, which is bad enough. You're killing them. Not only are you killing these people physically, you're also not converting them. You're not making more Christians. You're not giving them the sacraments, right? You're not giving them the faith. That is a sin unto itself, according to De Las Casas. Which is strange, right? Because he's kind of saying, like, you know, I wish you wouldn't kill them. But if you have to, can't you convert them first so that they go to heaven? Right? So it's kind of double-edged here, right? De Los Casas is saying, yes, it's a problem that you are physically harming, killing these people, but it's also a problem that you're putting their souls in danger by not allowing them to convert to Christianity. If my memory serves me correctly from last week, the goal, Spain's goal, is to convert them anyway. Mm -hmm. So doesn't that kind of, not that like, it kind of like compensates for it, but... If the goal was to, like, do it anyway. To, what do you mean anyway? Convert them anyway? As it, it converted to Christianity anyway, like, wasn't that the goal from the very beginning? Yeah, that's part of the goal, absolutely. So Columbus and the Spanish colonial enterprise, of course, had, like, economic and geopolitical goals for what they were doing, but part of what they were doing was they were intending to convert people to Christianity, yeah. So what De Los Casas is doing is saying, not only is it a problem that you are killing these people, it's also a problem that you're not converting them. 
you are putting their physical, temporal bodies in danger. You're also putting their souls in danger. Because if you die and you're not a Christian, according to kind of traditional Christian belief, like, where do you go? Oh. Yeah, you don't go anywhere good, right? You have to be a Christian to go to heaven, to be among the elect, or, or whatever. Does that make sense? So it's not just, it's a bad thing to kill. It's also, it's a bad thing not to convert, right? So... Again, we're going to wrap this together in a second, but I want to kind of point out something else that's important about these last two passages. There's a rhetorical move that De Las Casas makes in these last two passages that's actually kind of really fascinating. What do you make of this construction at the beginning of both of these passages, and one may see here, or and one can see here? What is he doing? Yeah, go ahead, start us off. So he's trying to like direct the reader to what the real issues are, yep. and when they see here that the Spaniards are doing this and this, and when they see here that the Spaniards are doing this. So he's kind of like directing the reader in the direction he wants them to go. Okay, so he's taking the reader by the hand, or like forcing the reader to look a particular way, right, giving that example, and one can see here. But when he does that, which is totally right, Caitlin, when he does that, what is he not doing? What does he actually never do here? What does, what does his decision to write and one can see here allow him not to say? Yeah. He's like not giving us a chance to be on the Spaniard side. Okay. He's anticipating a potential criticism or something and he's, he's not even allowing us space or room to get into it, right? Because he's just saying, no, you can see here, this is what happened. Okay, good. The, Catherine, what's that? Um, I was just going to say he's not really, like, he's kind of, like, beating around the bush with it. Yeah, say more. What do you mean? Yeah. Um, he said, everything he says, he, and may judge whether. It's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. It, it could be this or it could be that. It's, up, it's kind of, like, up to us. And for some reason, I know this sounds crazy, but this whole thing reminds me of, like, Nazi Germany, where everybody was like, I didn't know what was happening. I didn't know. Yeah. And everybody knew, but nobody wanted to say anything. Yeah. So I feel like in his case, he might have been, like, I know this is wrong, but what am I going to do? Am I going to get outed by my own people, or am I going to, you know, ride with the crowd and do this? Yeah, I don't think that's actually the craziest, like, um, parallel or analogy. Like, I actually thought of it in Joe's question when you said, like, why didn't other people stand up and right. do something about this? Like, that's the same question that we get out of, like, the Holocaust and other Nuremberg trials. Like, why didn't people stand up and do this? So the, and, and that kind of idea about group psychology is one of the answers that you hear, is that, like, you know, it's actually really hard, not that it's okay, there's no justification, but it's actually really hard to pull yourself out of that. But that first point you made is really crucial here. What he's using is a bunch of qualifying language. And one may see here, and one can see here. What he's not ever saying is, this is my belief, this is it. I argue that, X, Y, or Z. He's always directing the reader to that belief instead of saying it himself. Yeah? Something I also noticed is he doesn't take any personal ownership. So yeah. he'll say, right. he wrote, like, look at the first quote, that I vouchsafe, I did see all these things. So we're already questioning, like, if he did it or not. And he writes, the Spaniards, mm -hmm. as yeah. opposed to, like, a select group of people, which, like, makes me question even more that he did this. He did, well. that he committed things, committed atrocities yeah, as well. Yeah, because he writes the Spaniards. He's not taking any personal ownership, yeah. but at the same time, he's kind of giving himself away. Yeah, he's distanced himself from his prior bad acts. He's distancing himself from the people he's critiquing, 
but rhetorically in those last two passages, he is not taking that next step and actually launching that critique. He is saying, reader, you may see here something. Now, he has brought us to this point where we are inclined to agree with him. Like, we're like, yeah, these people are not acting very Christian, clearly. Like, they're cutting off people's hands and heads and raping people. Like, they're clearly not acting very Christian, right? But he actually doesn't come out and say it. He just says, one may see here that this is the case. So what's the effect of that? What does that do to readers? Yeah. Uh, Barbie, like, doesn't believe it, because it's, like, it's not, he's not confirming, he's not, like, giving you a concrete, this is what they did. Right. Like, it's almost like one can see, like, you're kind of leaving it up to our judgment, we want, like, the truth, you aren't there. Good, okay, so that's one way to think about it, is that, like, you want, if he's going to say, I was here, I saw these things, the correlative is you want him to say, this is what I claim, this is what I argue, this is my criticism. Yeah. And he, like, leads off the whole excerpt by saying, like, the Christians, like, when they got to the island, he doesn't say, like, when the I Christians are, like, yeah. the islands of the Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but he is a Spanish Christian who was implicated in those and acts. And he comes to, become a priest, you say. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So he is totally implicated in the acts, but he's critiquing them. Yeah. I, I believe everything that he's saying. I just, I don't know. I think by doing that, he's kind of saying, like, this, I'm telling you exactly what I saw. I'm telling you exactly what happened. If you don't believe it, if you don't think that's the Christian way, then that's that's your, I'm telling you what right. what's here, what you may see. And if you don't believe it, that's up to you. So he's anticipating that criticism another way or another kind of, yeah, another way into Catherine, the comment that you're making is like, and think about Bartolome de las Casas writing this or speaking it to a jury. He's like an attorney, right? And he is speaking it in a closing argument to a jury, right? Instead of just saying, this is how I feel, he's leading the reader, again, taking the hand of the reader and leading them through the evidence, allowing the reader to come to their own conclusion but all the while subtly pushing that reader to the conclusion that he wants them to have, right? As a kind of legal practice, if you're an attorney and you're in a closing argument, you actually want the jury to think that the jury came up of their own accord and by their own volition with the judgment that you want them to have. You don't want to go up to the jury and say, like, I am telling you he's not guilty, period. You want to tell the jury, hey, You've looked at all this stuff. You're smart. You're a Christian. You're a faithful person. You decide. I trust you. One can see that this is what occurred, right? So he's putting a lot of trust and responsibility in his readership to understand the criticism that he's making and, and, and accept it. So yeah, that's a good way of thinking about it too, right? Is that he's like actually in front of a jury and he's subtly kind of bringing the reader into the fold of what he wants them to know. But he never says it outright. He never says it outright in these moments. The thing that he's never saying, which is kind of the, the, the massive, another massive important point here, is that the kind of foundation of his criticism is that the things that Spanish people are doing under the guise of Christianity are profoundly unchristian. Right? Like, all of these things they say they are Christian people, they're not doing very Christian things at all. Right? It's clearly 
something is wrong. Clearly there's a hypocrisy happening, clearly there's a double standard, clearly there are people who are not actually practicing the faith that they profess to believe. That's what he's getting his readers to think and to believe. But he never says it, which is a really interesting move. So anyways, we'll step back from this and kind of just rehearse a couple of the really important points here. On what does he base his criticisms? Well, that first point, he bases them on a first-hand account. That gives a certain measure of authority, although I take Joe's point, too, that like by saying that, and by saying that he was there and he was part of it, that also might ask us to question what he's doing a little bit, too, or his self-interested, uh, the self-interested nature of what he's writing. But generally speaking, he's basing it on a first-hand account that increases his authority, that increases the authenticity of what he's saying. Um, and then he's also basing his criticisms on this idea that Christian people wouldn't actually do the things that the Spaniards are doing. So what he's essentially saying is that the things that the Spaniards are doing, because they are profoundly unchristian, they can't actually be justified. So he's basing his criticism on faith, right? On the true practicing of the Christian faith. He's saying that if these people actually practiced what they professed to believe, they would not do the things that they are doing. They are unjustifiable. There's no way to justify these acts within a Christian framework. There's no way to do it. That's Felix Casas' kind of primary critique. But the way he gets there is really interesting. I mean, I like this conversation we had around the the rhetorical moves that he's making to get to this foundational critique that he bases his claims on. He never says, I claim this, I claim that. He actually never says, the Spaniards aren't Christians. He says, you can see by what I'm telling you that maybe, maybe not, they're not really following the faith that they profess. But he never actually says the Spaniards aren't Christians in these passages. And there's a reason for that. Maybe it's a self-interested reason, to go back to your point. Maybe he's just being cagey, right? Maybe there's a rhetorical reason for not wanting to um, alienate himself to his readers. He might also, like we said, he might also be thinking that the best way to persuade is to subtly lead his readership to this conclusion as opposed to just claiming it outright. All of those things work in thinking through the rhetorical choice he's made here. But I just think it's a really interesting one. Um, Questions? Concerns? Comments? All right. um, I sent a couple of things, right? So um, just moving forward, Wednesday's reading longer than the readings have been recently. But, as a enticement, you're gonna read Pocahontas, the, the Pocahontas story. And in class, which you won't be here, but you'll be able to watch it after, we're gonna watch some of the Disney movie. So that should be cool. Paint with all the colors of the wind and shit. Uh, I send response papers back to people with grades if you have questions about them or you can't see the comments or something, let me know. If you have a response paper for me, you can bring it up. But I think that's all I have. Thanks.